0: Hello and welcome back to the Trade Happy Podcast. My name is Tally Rye and today we are talking about a topic that is particularly close to my heart and I certainly get into my own experience of IBS in today's episode. It's something I have spoken about before, if you've followed me on social media, I've written about it for Stylist magazine, but I felt like it was really important to get the right person on to talk about this topic. So today I am joined by Dr. Sula Windgassen, who is a health psychologist um, who did a PhD which focused on the kind of psychology around IBS and how... Uh, interventions like CBT therapy can help people manage IBS and symptoms Um, and we get into it but Dr. Sula also does a lot of stuff around chronic pain and chronic health conditions and so it was a really interesting conversation to hear um, yeah, about health psychology and and what that all entails. Of course before we get into it I just want to remind you that we have the Grease 2022 Train Happy Retreat next September in just under a year's time. I'm so excited. The more I look at the pictures of the gorgeous villa we're in and the views and everything, the blue skies, the blue sea, I am so looking forward to it. Um, If you need and you want to have five nights away for you to really just focus on yourself allow yourself space to really focus on healing your relationship with exercise and with yourself and with your body and with food then i think the train happy retreat can be a really positive supportive space to do that as well as just being a lovely holiday um It's gonna be great. We're gonna be going on boat trips and exploring the area, swimming in the sea, whilst also doing workshops and dance party workouts and all the rest of it. You can find out more information by checking out the show notes or heading to my website, www.tallyride.co.uk. There's more information on there for you. Um, I would love to see you there. I would love to see you there. I know we have a few spaces left, so make sure you book soon because payment plans are available and you can break down the cost over the next year, which is amazing, um, which really helps make it more affordable. But before we get into today's conversation, let's hear from our train happy trooper of the week. (laughs) This week's Train Happy Trooper is the lovely Rachel. And Rachel says, So I've always found gyms really intimidating spaces, but as I've been exercising more, I wanted access to a better range of equipment than I had at home. Out of a mix of anxiety and also only wanting to do the most effective exercises in terms of burning calories, I previously only ever used the treadmill cross trainer or exercise bike. I found a love of general movement but specifically strength training over the last lockdown as I love feeling my body getting stronger and able to do more things. So my train happy moment of the week was pushing through my nerves and anxiety and finally using the strength machines at the gym and absolutely loving it. Rachel, I love that because I think there can be so much intimidation around the gym. Maybe this is another episode we should do. Let us know on Instagram at TrainHappyPodcast if you would like us to do an episode on sort of gym intimidation and all that kind of stuff, because I certainly think that is a big barrier to people feeling comfortable um, in the gym. Um, and I'm so glad you plucked up the courage and went for it. And are exploring strength training and yeah hope you're feeling like a badass if you would like to have your train happy moment featured on the podcast to support and encourage our community and if you would like to be featured as train happy trooper of the week then please get in touch via instagram you can direct message us at train happy podcast you can send us an email train happy podcast at gmail.com and we would love to feature you. And if you wanna get to know Rachel some more, she will be featured as Train Happy Trooper of the Week on the Gram, so you can hear more from her over there. Okay, enough from me. It's time to hear from the brilliant and insightful Dr. Sula Wingassen. Dr. Sula Wingassen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you Um, for having me. I don't know if we're going to keep it in, but I did just get the lowdown on the origins of your surname. Um, so I appreciate you for giving me the pronunciation on that. But how are you? How are you doing? Um, and yeah, thank you for being here.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm good, thank you. I'm, um, I'm feeling more optimistic since, <laughs> since we've been able to just get to a bit more, I mean, yeah, what is normality, but we've been able to see people that's made a big difference. So yeah, yeah, I'm good. Thank you.
0: Good. Yeah. I feel like I started really checking in with people as con- this podcast start- started at the beginning of the pandemic, oh, wow. kind of coincidentally, and it wasn't on purpose. It's just how timings worked. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just getting to check in with people and like steadily, I think people are feeling optimistic and things are improving. And it's, it's feeling positive um so for people who don't know you you are a health psychologist which I think is a really fascinating title (laughs) um and I'd love you to explain what that entails um what that means for your kind of day-to-day job I just you know get to know what you do
1: yeah absolutely I think well the title health psychologist it's a funny one because I guess people generally know what a clinical psychologist is, uh, which is, you know, somebody that's trained in predominantly one therapeutic modality plus another one in maybe lesser detail. Um, And then they can pick up extra bits and they go through all these placements where they get a good range of uh, knowledge and practice working with different clinical populations. Whereas a health psychologist, there isn't the funding for health psychology doctorate that there is for clinical psychology doctorate so essentially you kind of design your own training in a a lot of respects so one health psychologist can look really different to another health psychologist depending on what they've done but for me how I did it in order to become a health psychologist you need to do a master's that's accredited with the British Psychological Society and then you need uh, the stage two doctoral qualification so that can be a doctorate or it can be the kind of independent British Psychological Society route, which is usually tacked on with a PhD, which is what I did. Um, But yeah, my day-to-day (laughs) is so varied. I'm I'm predominantly working with people with long-term health conditions, providing cognitive behavioural therapy, mindfulness, and some compassion-focused therapy, yeah in order it depends on the condition Uh, with conditions like irritable bowel syndrome we know that we can improve their symptoms with other presentations it would be more like improving their quality of life rather than thinking that psychological can predominantly you know make a massive difference in in their physical presentation but it obviously makes a huge difference to just focus on the psychological aspect so that it doesn't impact quite so much
0: I think it's so interesting because we do focus so much on the medical side of things. And what I feel like I have learned in the last few years is just how intertwined our mind is with everything Mm. that's going on with us um, and how that plays a really major role that perhaps we're not as educated on or have as much understanding of, Um, Absolutely, and that's really interesting.
1: I'm yeah, curious it's... how you, oh, sorry, go. No, I was going to say, I think you're right. I think we, um, we're, we're brought up in like a biomedical model. So we're used to having acute health problems where something's gone wrong in our body. We can go in and get the medication or get the surgery and get it fixed and get out. And I think it's only really when people start experiencing chronic health conditions where they realize that biomedical model really fails us because when the problem is more complex and there's lots of different moving parts and a lot of it is to do with the interaction between our our physical and our psychological and social that's where we don't really have a good treatment pathway because we don't have an integrated healthcare system in that way if the medics don't have a topical treatment or a quick you know fix then we're kind of left to figure it out on our own and that causes tremendous stress and then it inevitably kind of makes our situation physically worse as well because we know that stress you know exacerbates physical health problems
0: yeah it's recently my boyfriend has gone through like loads of testing with the doctor over some various sort of pains and and various things he was experiencing and he did everything like all the tests you could do everything and he kind of realized like oh no this is completely stress related Mm. and uh my body just does this when I'm stressed and funnily enough when I'm not stressed I'm fine (laughs) and it's and I think we've really normalized stress in like 2021 I think the way our society is set up I think it it feels to me I've kind of been feeling this recently having had a probably been like heading towards a little bit of burnout kind of feeling like that it's it doesn't like let up like there's no give and we're constantly sort of on this grind and in this you know, day to day existence of trying to make a living for ourselves and trying to pay our bills and have a social life and, you know, just do all the things you're meant to do. Um, And it's never ending. And that, and there's so many sort of stresses within that. And it feels like it's not going to change anytime soon, unless I'm going to like, live off grid in a commune, like, I'm not sure how I'm going to get away from that. It sounds so really it's good, actually. really <laughs> It does. Trust me, I've been thinking about it. <laughs> um but yeah, I just I just think it's I don't know, what are you? what are your thoughts, you know, what how do you see stress playing a role with people's kind of overall health and and and, and its impacts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. We do we live in a society that does glorify stress I think stress and busyness are so often equated with each other right and if you're busy you're successful Mm -hmm. and we've got a lot of emphasis on being productive and being successful and achieving and it's part of this yeah this whole societal mentality that you need to keep producing and growing and getting bigger and whatever you do and I guess we can see just like looking at billionaires they don't stop you know once they've hit a couple of mil, they don't stop there. They mm. want to get bigger, and they want to get to billions. And once they get to billionaire status, they don't stop there. And I, I think that's the same kind of thing with our endeavors. We we can get ourselves caught in this cycle of once I get to a certain stage, then I can I'll be okay, and it won't be as stressful. But as you were reflecting, that comes with its own set of stresses. And actually, we, we think that we're then trying to maintain. But if we get a glimpse of I could perhaps progress a bit further and then it won't be as frantic and I won't have to maintain I'll be I'll be perfectly happy then and it is just a fallacy because we keep moving the goalposts, and it's not something that we're obviously consciously doing It, it comes from all all angles you know the basic needs of just survival and making sure that we've got our finances in place and safety and whatnot but then yeah going from there all the other things our comfort and if our comfort goes then you know I won't be able to have good mental health and if that goes then and and we quickly get ourselves in this I guess fear cycle of it could all go so I need to work harder to make sure that it can never go but it is ultimately a fallacy and a stressful one
0: (laughs) yeah yeah a little bit like a house of cards like (laughs) one thing's gonna be taken and it feels like it all comes tumbling down it's yeah it is it is I have a feeling people are are like nodding along and relating (laughs) that they that they know they know that feeling so we've got so much to talk about today but I want to just establish how you came to become a health psychologist and like a bit about you and your own journey I did in my research was kind of finding out that you had your own health conditions which kind of brought you down this path but i'd love to hear more about it from you
1: yeah definitely i mean i did psychology at undergrad and i did a module on health psychology and it was so fascinating because one of the areas that blew my mind which is what we were talking about was this interaction between the the mind and the body and this Area of science called psychoneuroimmunology <clears throat> and there was a really interesting study that showed that stressed carers took on average i think 9.5 days longer than a, a control sample of non-stressed people to heal from the same you know punch biopsy wound and i just that blew my mind just the fact that our immune system will literally be impeded by our psychological experience but yeah I, I, I fell into the trap of getting warned off psychology because it's so competitive and you know it's very hard to get into a career and you're going to do all of these really difficult jobs and whatever whatever so I went into marketing because I was doing some marketing on the side during uni to get some money and it was a job I just wasn't passionate about and it was for a small firm and you know it it just it wasn't in line with my values really but I was kind of kidding myself because I had some financial security and I thought well psychology marketing's kind of related but I think once everybody left my university town which was Leeds it was really just me and one friend who was working in a bar so we had conflicting schedules My support network had gone. I wasn't enjoying my job. I wasn't getting any satisfaction from it. And I think that that stress and, yeah, lack of purpose, lack of meaning, you know, the anticlimax after uni really exacerbated the then physical health experience that I had. So I'd I'd had bouts of cystitis when I was a kid, and I'd had them when I was a teenager a couple of times. And it would always just go with, antibiotics but at this period of time they just wouldn't budge so it might go slightly but it would still be there a little bit and then I'd go back to the doctor and they'd say oh there's no infection anymore so you know we can try you on this but there's nothing really there but i was still having these really strong symptoms and then I guess I got into the journey that I find a lot of people end up getting into when they've had some kind of chronic health experience which is just this horrible period of uncertainty where you're trying to look for the specific cause behind your symptoms and you're not getting answers and you're going for all the tests and the doctors are starting to look at you like you're a bit hysterical and it's not really a problem but at the same time you're having this physical experience where at points I was just glued to the toilet because I was like if I move I'm gonna wee myself Uh, and and it really hurts so it's the only place I can be and I can't do anything else. And then obviously then you can't go to work when you're in that stage. Um, And so you then have to go on sick pay, your finances are impacted and that impacts stress and your bosses are starting to look at you differently and all of these things. So my identity totally changed from being this happy-go-lucky, excited university student to being this disenfranchised ill (laughs) a worried uh, person that couldn't get herself into work. And I think all of those circumstances combined really exacerbated, you know, how difficult it was to cope with those symptoms. I think I've looked back many times and thought if my friends were around, I might've had some positive distraction and I would have had, you know, the benefits of social connection and maybe it wouldn't have snowballed quite as much as it did but it did and um, my dad was doing a a master's in mindfulness and he at one point I just couldn't go back to work for a a good two to three weeks and I started getting these chronic migraines again because of the stress and he suggested that I do some mindfulness with him and I've told this anecdote quite a few times but I, I was really I guess offended because I was having these real strong physical symptoms and i just didn't understand how he thought something like that would help but he showed me this documentary which was of uh, john kabat-zinn's first or one of his first mindfulness-based stress reduction courses with a lot of people with various different chronic illnesses and it was really inspiring because you could see these people have the same reaction as me like, what the hell is this about? Or how's this going to help me? And then you saw their transformation as they started to relate to their experience and their bodies differently. So I started practicing mindfulness, and it really made a massive impact in terms of, yeah, how I responded to my symptoms and being able to still. I guess nip the catastrophizing and the worry about symptoms in the bud a little bit so that I could still do things and then that helped in itself you know enable me to get senses of pleasure and not feel as burdensome and withdrawn and that all helped and then yeah of course it's not just mindfulness it was a combination of trying different treatments and ways to look after my body but that really inspired me to go back to uni and do the master's in health psychology and start doing some research into mindfulness initially but from there so it
0: runs in the yeah so it runs in the family
1: yeah well (laughs) we won't talk about my dad that's a whole podcast (laughs) (laughs) but yeah yeah he definitely inspired a big part of the journey he's a psychiatrist rather than a psychologist but yeah, the mindfulness part, I can give him a lot of credit for.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that, When I, lo- I love that. Um, it, it is really interesting how you said that, yeah, that, that this had just, like, never, even despite doing your psychology course, like, it had never occurred to you that mm. the two, there could be anything to do. It could be anything other than a purely physical issue Mm. um and have you like have you found that happen with um you know patients with people you've been working with um that they never really considered that there might be a link
1: yeah and it's difficult because it's a fine line that you've got to tread because one thing that often happens particularly for women rather than men is they do get the message that their symptoms aren't as bad as they're presenting with that it's kind of all in their head that they're being hysterical and so if they then get given the message that actually a psychological treatment can be really helpful for you it exacerbates that and it falls in line with that messaging so when I'm talking with patients about why psychology might be helpful I'm really careful in how I portray it and I'm really you know explicit and quick to say because we're suggesting this and because you've been referred here isn't because we disbelieve what you're going through your symptoms are very real they're very physical and yes there'll be lots of different physiological things going on that you know we're not necessarily we can say and we can magic away through through talking but there is a wider picture and we know research shows us that our psychological experiences do have an impact on our physiology and and that's you know there's lots of different mechanisms there's our immune system the the more stressed we are the more run down so the less likely we're going to bounce back from infections the more worried we are the the lower we are the more our brain kind of exacerbates these pain signals it changes our hormones levels you know there's so many different pathways so i try and do a lot of I guess, psychoeducation about how the two overlap, and then talk a bit about how alleviating a bit of the stress through psychological processes might then, you know, positively impact symptoms. But it is tricky. And it's not like people automatically go, oh, yeah, I completely see it. It can take a bit of convincing, particularly when they've been stuck in this horrendous journey of trying to find out what's medically wrong with them. And that that can become really fixating.
0: One specific thing I wanted to discuss with you today, and what I believe was kind of um, what your PhD was about, Mm. was talking about how um, IBS can be kind of looked at from this um, psychological angle and how I think you used CBT therapy to help people um, manage their symptoms and, and manage their IBS. And this is a part, this is like a personal thing for me. And I really wanted to talk about it on the podcast because having experienced IBS in my early twenties, um, and literally only really just having Google to figure out what was going on with me. Um, it felt that, you know, 10 years ago, people didn't really know much about it. So, it just like I didn't really get many asks from my doctor and kind of felt like well I'll just figure it out myself and at that time it was really um like this kind of idea of being um gluten-free was just kind of happening Mm -hmm. and you could go on social media you know Pinterest and Instagram and everything and people would tell you that you know if you don't if you eat too much dairy if you eat too much gluten. If you, um, if you, you must have a gluten sensitivity, you must, you, you need to cut out sugar. That's what's causing this, um, bloating and pain and and diarrhea and all the rest of it. And I really took that to heart at the time. and, And I just really put everything down to food. And I, I wrote an article about this for stylist magazine, and I was really overwhelmed at the response of how many people resonated with kind of my story, because it kind of turns out that having, you know, watched my food so um, obsessively, it was obsessive at the time, um, and, you know, being very strictly gluten-free, that I realized that gluten wasn't the issue um, after I cut out gluten for maybe a couple of years, and I'd been kind of it was my first year after drama school and I was working and I was throwing myself in like six days a week really long days everything else um I'd been having these IBS flare-ups and bloating and I then kind of finished my summer by going on holiday with my boyfriend and it was kind of the first grown-up holiday I'd done with my boyfriend like just us and everything and on that holiday I don't know I, I can't even remember how or why but I let myself eat gluten and what was so fascinating is it had absolutely zero impact on my body and I'll it just kind of made me think like hmm so when I'm on holiday and I'm relaxed and I'm having fun and I'm just you know at peace <laughs> Gluten's not an issue for me at all. And in fact, my digestion works pretty damn well. Like it, it you know, it's pretty happy. So what, the, you know, what's the, like the missing piece here? And I think from then on, I've really learned that for me, and I still occasionally, occasionally have a you know, some some tummy troubles. Um, I can really always trace it back to stress. And, and I should add at the time, so, to give everyone context and a bit of a timeline. My dad died when I was 17 and I went, then I went to, and I didn't really grieve or acknowledge it mm. that well. And I went to drama school and I kind of just kept pushing it to the back of my mind. You know, just, I was just a carry on person. Like, do you know what? I, this, my view on grief at the time was like, you're not going to gain anything from mm. from grieving. So just, just carry on, just get, you know, just- get on with it. A very British thing, I would say. A very British approach to, to grief. And I went to drama school, which is also an extremely stressful environment. So competitive. You feel like you're constantly being judged. You're constantly literally on show. Um, so many people's opinions about you all the time. And it's very political as well. So there's all that juggling as well. And um, yeah, it was so interesting that finally when i kind of had moved past that point in my life and got to a point where you know i was self employed it was my job i was in control and then i could go on holiday that's when i started to actually have a positive experience with my gut and it was so interesting and i wrote like i said i wrote about this and it got really positive feedback and a lot of people kind of i think it and a lot of people going wow this this kind of resonates but i'd never thought of it that way and i that's my story and now I'm curious what the research says and what you found during your PhD in in terms of you know this that's my anecdote but you know what are we seeing in the research
1: yeah well thank you so much for sharing that and I'd love to see that article actually because that sounds really yeah no wonder loads of people resonate with it because that's exactly what we we find in the research very similar experiences and I mean, there's two things, two two things in particular that you touched on there. One is the fixation of foods and how easy it is to go down that route, which definitely is, you know, a huge component, I think, in IBS. And the other is the suppression of grief or, you know, difficult emotions. And that's, again, another mm-hmm. huge bit. So I guess just to give an overview from my PhD, but then we'll perhaps talk about those two things in particular what I was looking at was what are the cognitive and behavioral factors that are involved in irritable bowel syndrome. So I did my PhD whilst I was working as a researcher on this large randomized control trial, which was, as you said, trialing distance delivered cognitive behavioral therapy to people. So people were either randomized to treatment as usual, so they would do what they usually did to to get treatment for IBS, or they would go into an intervention condition where they spoke with a therapist for an hour six sessions and then two follow-up sessions or they predominantly did like a web-based program and they had three sessions for half an hour with a therapist and two follow-up sessions but the the intervention content was the same and and what my PhD was exploring was what needs to change during the therapy process in order for symptom severity to reduce as well as quality of life so those two outcomes we looked at differently and we found in order for symptoms to reduce it was really important that people were changing their bowel related behaviors so not general kind of anxiety behaviors but bowel related behaviors and of course one part of that is fixation on food avoiding foods you know yeah cutting food groups out that kind of thing as well as avoiding things like social events because of the fear of bowel symptoms and taking extra items in case they have an accident and that kind of stuff and using a modium or the opposite fibrous supplements to help them go depending on what kind of ibs they have and the other thing that really needed to change in order for their symptoms to reduce was their bowel related cognition so the the thoughts that they were having about their bowel symptoms so those thoughts and behaviors go hand in hand right so if people were thinking i can't cope when i have bowel symptoms they're more likely to withdraw cancel things get worried and anxious about things and that's going to have a massive impact on their bowel symptoms but also if they're thinking it's going to be super embarrassing if i have an accident they're going to do their best to prevent having an accident which actually counterintuitively involves you know doing lots of these safety behaviors like checking where the toilets are and mapping out their route and i think the thing that's counterintuitive about it is people think that alleviates their anxiety and it might in the short term but it actually keeps them fixated on the fact that they might have an accident and they don't get the chance to see that without doing that they don't generally have issues but the entire time they're bracing for it so those were the the key things and to to hone in on one particular bowel related behavior that you touched on in your own experience it's so easy for people to go down the food related route because again it's really intuitive if you eat something and then you notice you're having bowel symptoms you automatically attribute it it's just classical conditioning really so one of the first things that we do in cbt for ibs is talk about the physiology of the bowel how it actually works and what's happening in ibs and a key thing that often shifts the way people think about that association between oh when i eat this i have a bowel symptom is seeing just how long it takes for food to travel down so people might have a piece of cheese and then they have like symptoms 10 minutes late 10 minutes later but it can't be from that cheese because it literally hasn't really got anywhere to do anything or have any effect. generally right so um so that is really you know key it's usually what's causing the symptoms is the process of eating rather than what you're eating especially if you've been skipping meals and avoiding food because you're scared of having symptoms so your bowels are never getting into that nice regular rhythm they're becoming deregulated because they eat at 9 a.m one day and then the next day they don't get fed until 1 p.m and whatever whatever the schedule ends up looking like so when whenever you eat that's one of the things that triggers off these big mass movements in the digestive process so that's when you start to feel those symptoms so yeah it's more about the process rather than the type of food but it's such a common trap that people fall into and then because they've been monitoring for so long and they've just taken that as red I can't eat that anymore then it's really interesting there is then some link but again it can't be like a because of the type of food but it's more the anticipated link that happens so they do start getting symptoms as soon as they eat a piece of cheese but that's because their brain's already anticipating it so it's kind of like the placebo effect in reverse in a sense
0: I vividly remember eating a goo chocolate pudding Mm -hmm. and my boyfriend at the time gave it to me and I was in this kind of very really slipping into quite an obsessive mindset about Food I was eating. Um, and at the time it was made a lot of it was motivation behind it was um IBS, but then I also had the motivation of I need to eat clean and eat healthy as well. So it was like a double-edged sword there that it was like it had gluten in, and it in my mind it was unhealthy. Mm-hmm. So I remember eating it, and then within the hour, feeling like my stomach had doubled, mm-hmm. I was so bloated. In so, much, in so much pain and I remember saying like and it, it, at the time I think he'd like surprised me with this pudding and I said like please never give me that again never do that again like I feel so unwell this isn't you know this must be what it is but you're right if you learn about digestion you realize like even within an hour it's not going to be the chocolate pudding like it takes longer for it to get down through all the different processes in your digestion um I wonder if you know like as someone who has studied IBS, like how long does it take for your body to digest something from eating to it going through a bowel? Because I think people would be that would be a helpful thing to know to yeah. reassure people.
1: It, I mean, it slides down the esophagus fairly quickly from your from your mouth, but then it sits in the stomach, so it's not really nothing. It's getting broken down in the stomach rather than anything's being particularly absorbed, and it can sit in the stomach. I think it's between two to four hours. Uh so it's quite a long time, really, depending on what you've eaten mm-hmm. and how easy it is or difficult it is to break down and then from there, it moves into the um small intestine and then the large intestine and the large intestine or the colon that's the bit where it's getting absorbed that's the bit that's really affected in i b s and so it can take now I forget how long it might be in the small intestine, but I know food can take you know it can be in that colon for you know hours six hours to days depending mm. uh, and not just one meal but it's essentially never empty so two to four hours in the stomach and then yeah it depends it, it's hours if not you know a day or so <laughs> to go through that that colon
0: so I think that's reassuring to kind of know that if you have if you eat something, you're not gonna feel the repercussions within like 10 minutes. <laughs> it's gonna it, like, if there are, you're gonna feel it like a little bit um, later on. And I wonder if you, at the time of doing your PhD and, and whether you've noticed some, some this be a factor since then, I'm noticing like on social media, you get a lot of posts of people kind of side-by-side side photos of like me bloated, not bloated. And there's this real fascination with bloat and uh, I think we try to overanalyze it and overthink it. Like, you know, just from my sort of, from my perspective, I think a lot of people read a lot more into bloating than they necessarily need to. And, and we've kind of tried to, there's a word I'm really searching for. We've tried to, Um. it's not coming to me, but we've
1: i hate it when that happens pathologized
0: floating that's what i'm looking for Yes, we pathologize floating and when it can just be like a really normal part of being a human being and digesting food like i know but the other day i made a bean quesadilla and i ate a half a half it was delicious but it had half a box of beans in it. And I knew I was gonna feel the repercussions of that later on. And I got really bloated and I went, Well, yeah, Tally, that is because you ate beans and you know how you you know how beans affect you. And I didn't go, and I and I think I know my body well enough now to not think like, well, beans need to be cut out. I can't eat them because XYZ. I just know that, okay, I just need to be mindful around eating quantity of beans because it is, you know, if I'm gonna be around other people. Yeah, it's probably gonna feel a bit gassy <laughs> so just be mindful of that <laughs> so just be mindful of how many beans you're eating um but besides that you know in the past in in the times of me kind of really overanalyzing every single thing I was eating beans would have gone on the no list mm. and there would have been a lot you know had there been beans and like chickpeas is another thing for me if those things had been in foods I would have panicked and like you're saying that kind of seems to make it 10 times worse than the effect it may have but yeah I just get back to the point of this discussion on social media around bloating and stuff is it helpful or is it sending mixed messages and and making people you know over analyze and overthink it too much
1: yeah I think you're I think you're right really I think that's a a great way of putting it pathologizing the bloat because we do get bloated from time to time and you know Megan Rossi the the gut health doctor she's she talks Mm -hmm. about how actually bloating is a big part of of our microbiome breaking things down and that's not a bad sign and you know beans and chickpeas they are things that might make you more likely to get bloated but they're really good (laughs) for your microbiome so and and I always wonder, you know, what what's the fascination with the bloat? Because I get I've been bloated where it's really uncomfortable. Usually mm-hmm. it's when I've eaten like an excessive amount of food after, you know, save, <laughs> saving up <laughs> for a real big indulgence or something. So I've I've probably not eaten for a long time and then I've gone out and had a huge, you know, banquet or whatever. Um and yeah, my, di- my digestive system just wasn't kind of ready for it, and, and then it can be really uncomfortable. But I, I, I get the sense that people are, are perturbed by the bloat more for aesthetic reasons rather than because they find it so uncomfortable. And maybe the the aesthetic discomfort makes them feel like it's more physically uncomfortable, if you know what I mean. If, if, if we were just, oh, well, I'm a little bit bloated now, I'll undo my top button, which I do frequently, <laughs> then. I don't All the think time. we would feel as physically uncomfortable about it
0: I do think that is a huge aspect of it this idea of and like that kind of like goes into the body image territory and what we discuss in the podcast a lot which is like fear of being in a bigger body and the way that um that has really been conditioned to us in society and so we kind of link it with that and so I think having those thoughts, I think people could, could be like, Hmm, I got a bit of fat phobia going on. Like, let me analyze that. Let me think about that because I I do believe that is largely part of it. And I think especially when a lot of posts I see of people doing these kind of bloat before and afters are people who genuinely aren't quite a smaller privileged body. Yeah. Um, and, and it feels, and that really resonates with people who have share similar fears and, and kind of, Always say, "Oh, well, thank you for normalizing this." Um, and on the side note of normalizing things, I think one of the best ways to normalize things is to just be, just show up as you are, and don't even need to explain yourself. Sometimes just yeah, exist, yeah. and that's normalizing. I think sometimes, um, yeah. And i I think I know that you know products, and I'm not saying they're not helpful for some people. But I know there's certain products people take, um, like their probiotics and all this kind of stuff and and I and I think wellness and, and fitness as well, these kind of health wellness spaces do put a lot of emphasis on that food aspect. like do you wish that there was more of a kind of discussion around the idea that hello? Your brains involved here too. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with Kimberly Wilson, who's Food and Psych on Instagram. We had her on the podcast. She's one of our best episodes. And I remember she shared, and I've sent it to so many people when having this conversation, where she did a diagram of um IBS and how like all these different factors can play. And and it kind of shows like how we get stuck in this obsession with food, but actually from what she was saying it was saying like one of the key predictors of whether you may experience IBS or similar gut symptoms are a a trauma or um you know adversity in childhood or something like that and that when i first saw that it blew my mind <laughs> mm. um do you wish there was more discussion around that i know you mentioned as well megan rossi dr megan rossi who people might know online as the gut mm. health doctor and i know she did include those sorts of things. I know Kimberly contributed to her book about that aspect. You know, is that a conversation you wish people were having more? I do,
1: but I think it's not a snappy conversation. You know, we were talking a bit about (laughs) um, Instagram and social media and, I mean, just media in general, and a, a nice snappy headline with take this product and you'll feel better, feel safer and more accessible for people. Is that it's really hard to persuade people to explore things in more depth, and and you know I can relate to that because we all live busy lives and we've got a lot of things that we're always looking into, but it it, it's hard to compete with those simplistic ideas that A plus B equals C, and therefore you take this or you avoid this, and it can be a lot more complex, and also it can be a really difficult thing for people to come to terms with and I think there could be a lot of cognitive dissonance because you know on that conversation of the role of adversity and trauma in IBS I mean the the statistics I think the prevalence of childhood trauma in IBS is around 50% which is twice that of the normal population and then other studies have shown that that the the lifetime experience of kind of different traumas, again, was significantly more in a sample of people with IBS than, you know, a population of people without. So it does, there is, you know, some kind of, of course it's correlation, but we can't deny that there's a role in there and not just within IBS, we see that in chronic pain conditions, but in order to be ready to explore that and think about how that has a role, that's that's a huge thing to really confront and we don't have any nice guiding Mm -hmm. tools I mean it really is therapy that would be able to take a, a much more tailored approach and it might take time and make you feel vulnerable and open up things that you've been really competently storing away you know just like your experience with your your own grief there so yeah, it's no wonder that <laughs> the conversation isn't, okay. it doesn't have as many legs, but it's a, an important one, no doubt.
0: Yeah, do you want to open up Pandora's box or what feels like Pandora's box? Yeah. And as someone who, well, I, I want to reassure people listening that as someone who actively went out of their way to kind of not deal with things and not confront mm. things, you know, or pretty, you know, at least 10 years later, I did it and it really wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And yes, it was hard and there have been difficult times, but it's worth it. Mm. And, you know, it is that kind of deeper, harder work. And, you know, we talk a lot about people's relationships with food and relationships with exercise on this podcast in general. And I often say that those things are the kind of tip of the iceberg and underneath it all, underneath all of these sorts of things are are that kind of deeper level of emotions and feelings and things that we're scared of or don't want to sit with and don't know. How. For me, as, not only did I not want to sit with it, I just didn't know how to. Mm. So I didn't have these tools. And so it felt really difficult. And uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm a big advocate of therapy, but I do believe it can really help support so many aspects of our well-being, whether it, mm. you know whether it is your relationship with food and your body image, and, and as you're saying, your your um, gut your health as health.
1: well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah, I, your I physical think, health. I genuinely do think if 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 from a young age we were taught more tools to acknowledge our emotions and sit with them in a safe way and process them and soothe ourselves and that was you know a central part of our teaching and growing up from our parents from our community from our schools I think we'd be better equipped as we navigate these difficult things and more willing to explore you know the role of the psychosocial aspects in in health and I I think that would mm. have a massive impact in people's ability to um, yeah to to respond to kind of health conditions in a way that perhaps gives them some alleviation because it, it's not an easy path once you're in it. Uh, so there's lots of preventative measures that we can take. I'm not saying to you know make sure that we never get pain, but t- to give ourselves the best possible chance of it not get essentially our nervous system not getting so hypersensitized and overreactive and all of these things by turning towards our emotions and finding a way to do that
0: mm, it's so interesting and I completely agree and I, I think if we had that education from a young age so many things would be better I mean so much of society I think we better I think <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this could be a whole separate yeah. podcast. <laughs> There's so many. I have so many thoughts on like, do I dare go off on a massive tangent? I, I think I'm going to save it. I'm going to save it for another episode. I'm going to save it for another episode. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about um, exercise and movement and its role in helping to support um, things like IBS, but also you kind of mentioned chronic conditions and chronic health conditions and i wondered if that if you had um yeah had any findings on how exercise can play a role, and how movement you know this is the train happy podcast so how movement can mm. support people as well and, and how it can benefit their mental health and how that can kind of feed into the a more positive cycle of, of well-being yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I think exercise. I mean, there's just so much research showing how fundamental exercise is to our mental health. But I do think there's like a branding problem with exercise because as soon as I hear the words exercise, I conjure up, you know, images being sweaty, out of breath in the gym, and I'm I don't I don't even know how I'd conceptualize my own relationship with exercise because <laughs> I really hate being massively out of breath (laughs) but then I do like those exercises where I push myself so so it's finding that sweet spot where I'm not so out of breath that I feel like I'm gonna faint and my lungs are gonna collapse but I'm out of breath enough I've got that kind of exercise high but automatically however I've been doing with my own exercise and activity whenever I hear the word exercise I I think of that and it's not just like a a negative connotation in terms of oh I don't want to go there but it's 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 also a standard that I feel like I must reach so Mm. when I'm doing it's been I mean less so now but it's been I guess a, a journey over the last two years where I've had to unlearn what my expectations of exercise are, and think of it more in terms of. I think activity might be a bit more of a neutral word, but of course, it's a bit more ambiguous. Um, this is big, why
0: when yeah. I talk, yeah, when I talk about exercise and and I talk about movement, and I mm. tend to use the word movement because I, like I do think word. exercise has that negative connotation. And um, you know, for some people who uh, who are kind of figuring out how they feel about exercise not using that word can be really helpful in getting them to a place where they can feel like they can explore other things. Mm. So movement and activity, a physical activity are things I love and I use them yeah. when I'm writing a lot because I try yeah. to make sure I'm including in, including that for that very reason um, you said. So what physical activity <laughs> <laughs> and movement? <laughs> um, yeah, do you kind of see, uh, there's sort of strong evidence for, or, or do you feel like it's just being more active can, can really help generally help support your well being?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that the, there's a particular movement that has stronger ev- evidence than the other. I think actually what the research is so, showing recently is that one of the most important factors is that, that, that attitude and the enjoyment to that movement. So where people enjoy it they tend to do it more but obviously they also have the added benefit of the the pleasure that comes from it so it becomes less of a punitive thing because you know we talk about endorphins which again i think there was another paper that came out that it's less about endorphins and there's other kind of physiological processes that that go on that are super important but yeah we hear about this kind of these physical chemical changes that happen with exercise but for some people the 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 mental aspect of <laughs> having pushed themselves and then what that's going to entail, especially if they're they've not been exercising, they're just new to it, or they've got some kind of chronic illness or whatever it might be, they've got a stressful week coming up, it does come with an element of potential exhaustion and um if you really pushed yourself and then you can't be bothered to like make a meal afterwards or whatever, there's a whole fallout of it. Right. So I think, I think the most compelling evidence that I've really been paying attention to is that when we think about what movement we're going to be doing, that we select something that we enjoy and, and we put the emphasis on that, the, the enjoyment of the movement. And I know you, you, you um, have lots of great kind of knowledge and, expertise on intuitive movement. But I think that is where the research is going to be headed to show that that's much more important than, you know, particular statistics about which, which exercise for how long, although there's, of course, the nice, nice guidelines, but I just tend to think some is better than none. And your relationship with that process is much more important than, you know, ticking a box.
0: Well I'll take that as um, I feel very validated right now <laughs> um, and I, I completely and I completely agree with you I think I do think in general we get quite bogged down with like the very specifics of what exactly we should be doing mm. but ultimately it's how you feel about what you're doing and not enough of us are having that are not thinking about that because not we're not being asked those questions Mm. um and so we do think then we do have these you know ideas that exercise is punishing I am going to be exhausted and those that's what exercise is when it it doesn't even need to be that it can be you can challenge yourself and still have energy left and and when you're kind of listening to your body and doing what's right for you you can make those choices um yeah I, I mean I obviously think intuitive yeah. movement is the
1: way forward but... it is but that is the crucial part the 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 fact that you don't have to push yourself into oblivion and I think not just with exercise and activity but just with day-to-day things we're very good at hearing an expectation or a standard and shooting for that and thinking that even if we can't get there we know we can't get there because that's where we should be we need to try and get as close to that otherwise we're not doing it right and we do that across the board as humans I think and we, we don't necessarily know that we're having these high expectations but the the end result is that we're getting negative experiences all the time because we always we're going around doing lots of things but thinking we're not doing them well enough and that definitely happens with our ideas about what we should be doing with movement so yeah moving towards intuitive movement and listening to our bodies I think is a much safer and more rewarding way of doing things really
0: well that leaves us then with asking you what has been your most recent train happy moment
1: it was a three-parter and it was this morning so this morning I went to the gym and I did some really nice deep squats and I love that feeling that you get when you do a deep squat there's nothing quite like it just at the back of your butt <laughs> so I really like that and then, <laughs> and then um and then but after that I was uh, my legs were kind of wobbly and so it was just lying down on the mat and not rushing into doing the next thing but just enjoying being laid there and really I just had this really nice moment of feeling all of my muscles kind of activated not feeling too um yeah pushed and (laughs) near cardiac arrest stage but just nicely worked and uh yeah it was lovely and then after that the third part of it was I then went and got this amazing vegan cheese and bacon croissant and had it with coffee and it was just lovely (laughs) so those three together
0: oh it sounds like Yeah, it sounds like you had a very nice time this morning. (laughs) Nice time for yourself. That's the main thing.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Sila, this has honestly been such a pleasure. I feel like there's been, yeah, so many things we can talk about, but it's been really interesting to hear kind of your insights and and the kind of psychology of things like IBS. Um, Where can people find you, find more about your work? Maybe people want to read more into your research. Um, Where can they find all of that?
1: Yeah, I guess the easiest uh, point of contact is the Instagram. So it's just at the underscore health, psych- no, health underscore psychologist with an under- uh, underscore to make it nice and easy. But I've also got our website, which is healthpsychologist.co.uk. And that's got all my publications and manuals and things like that on there. So either either places.
0: I'll put all of that in the show notes for everyone. But it's been a real, real pleasure. Yeah, thank you um, so yeah, much. Thank you so much. It's been great. It's been lovely. And that is it for this week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please let me know by sending feedback. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. Or even better, it would be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening as it really, really helps to support and boost the train happy message. And remember, if you have had a recent moment where this stuff has just started clicking for you, then share your story with us via email trainhappypodcast at gmail.com to become the train happy trooper of the week. And if you have a burning question you would like me to answer, then please send those in too, and it may be answered in our bonus Q&A episodes. Once again, thank you for listening, and I will speak to you soon. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact